South Florida versus the recreational drug. Oh, yeah. So I found that the perspectives of within the rooms were very close minded to any alternative treatments. Right. You know, you had to you had to do what was prescribed within the rooms if you wanted to get clean, according to them. Right. And then when I was in the, you know, within the recreational drug scene here in South Florida, I feel like it's like almost like the opposite. There's no, there's no prescribed method. It's just free do whatever you want. Chaos. Yeah, super free for all. <laughs> Nobody practices safe drug use. Right. A lot of people take random substances. You know, they just want to get trashed. And uh, that's the big majority I see, I see here. You know, we don't really have a smart drug users. And I think that really, you know, it really shadows the fact that, you know, not a lot of people here in South Florida care about alternative treatments just because we're so closed off to like a certain way of doing things. Yeah. And I found that from my experience of people that I've, I've talked to in South Florida that have, um, yeah, that have talked about their psychedelic experiences is usually more in the context of, uh, you know, partying and getting fucked up rather than trying to, you know, expand your consciousness or try to get some healing out of it. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was my experience, <laughs> experience with it as well. You know, that's how I originally got into it. But then, uh, looking into it for myself i started to realize like oh this might be this might be uh useful for some things other than just uh partying and whatnot like i was trying to do all right so uh so yeah talking about how, how did you get involved with the the students for sensible drug policy here let move around again all right so how i got involved with the uh, ssdp yeah yeah so yeah we'll piggyback off on that story of my recreational drug use when I was 14 and then 16, 17, I started messing around with that. And then I, I went into rehab for about three months and let me see. After that, I ended up getting arrested another time. And after that time, I was put into a, a drug court program. I don't know if you've heard of the, the drug court programs yeah. here in Miami, Florida. Well, I'm more familiar really with the ones in Broward, but it's. Yeah, very similar. It's the, the drug court diversion program. Right. I know that's different. I mean, it's more men. I know of a guy that's involved with the mental health uh, jail there also had another judge I for, it was judge cohen so with judge cohen i was put on the the drug court diversion program it was about a year long and they had me you know taking drug tests like three times a week for the for the duration of a year doing very subpar therapy the therapists were extremely extremely subpar like therapists i experienced in south miami were were very on point very good therapists right. you know whereas the, the drug court ones government supported were were pretty were pretty horrid you know so after my experiences with that you know for about a year and it's it sucked you know i hadn't known about ssdp for a few years but uh when i was out actually no i wasn't even out of it yet i was like halfway through it and i'm thinking like wow this is such bullshit why am i like why am i in this this is such bullshit you know what the fuck so i started looking into drug laws and uh seeing what what i could do about it and i had known about sstp for a few years but i thought like oh let, let me start doing things because this is affecting my life and it's probably affecting other people's lives so i i remember well, how's your family's contact. reaction oh man yeah it was it was pretty it was pretty intense with the family dynamics here for a while you know it was like yeah very intense my parents were like freaking out you know our son is like a drug addicted <laughs> crazy person you know, and uh, it's it's taken a few years to really uh, gain their trust again and start being uh, a normal member of the family, you know, and a contributing member of society. Whereas before, you know, I was just be like doing stupid teenage shit, you know, going out and partying, doing a whole bunch of drugs, you know, getting arrested, you know, that, that's not cool. And it took me a while to uh, realize that. But uh, definitely the family dynamic at that time was super fucked. You know, there was a complete lack of connection. Between all of us, it was, uh, I, I remember I, I experienced a lot of isolation. You know, I would try to isolate myself from my friends and family and I would purposely not try to talk to them. And, uh, that's, you know, that just wasn't cool. It created a very, very shitty family dynamic. No, which is I was mad. wondering what, uh, how your, your family saw as you, you getting involved with the drug policy stuff. What was, what was there? Uh, okay. Okay. But, but it was yeah, good you yeah, shared yeah. that stuff too. I mean, that's all relevant and interesting as well, but I was more interested to see how they, what, how they were, what they were thinking about how you were getting involved with this drug policy stuff initially. Or maybe they didn't know Definitely. about it initially. Yeah, they thought it was very strange. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I come from a Latin, a Latin background. I'm the first generation. Uh, well, what part of Latin? First generation American. What, yeah, so what, all of my family. Yeah, where are they from? So my family's born from, from Cuba. Right. 
they're all Cuban. It's just me and my brother that are born here. So I'm the first one that's born here to have been graduated. So that's cool. But uh, just because everybody's been born in a, in Cuba, their their views on on everything and everything pretty much are different. So they're gonna be different on drug policy. And when they realized that I was I was into this doing these things, you know, there I had two different types of reactions. I'd say my mom's would be the most common in the in the Latin culture, which is just uh like really like what the fuck? Why do you care? Like what like I don't get it. Why are you doing this? Weed is bad. Why are you trying to make weed legal? Like she thinks that my club is just like the make weed legal club. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we you know, that's how we do. She kind of like realized it was a bit different yeah. after attending the dinner, but for the most part, you know, she just thinks that I'm a pothead and I'm trying to make a weed legal and that's all I care about. She doesn't so really. Now she still things. thinks about that. She thinks that way now. Yeah. Really. Yeah. 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 I figured. I just my assumption. I, I think. I would think she'd be real proud of you now that you're, you know, doing better things with it. I would think she would come around. Uh, no, no, uh, she's still like. Uh, okay. Even at the dinner, I had noticed her face was really? very like, like, <laughs> like just really angry. Yeah, for like the first hour, and then uh, I guess after a while, you know, people kept like. Like saying thank you, Kevin, and clapping, and you know, like <laughs> I kept getting round of applause, and I guess she was pretty like distraught. Like, what do I feel right now? Like, I don't know. Like, I'm confused as a parent. You know, that, that's what I that's what I really got from my mother, because she's been a, uh, you know, so raised upon the idea that all of these things are really bad for you, and uh, they should all be heavily stigmatized. And right. uh, you know, being in a room where everybody else thinks differently, you know, I feel like that's a really like clashing experience for an individual especially like her so i i kind of get it the reactions that she has but you know it's not it's not what i agree on and hopefully within some years as i develop even more yeah you know and as i uh go on through the journey she'll really realize that it's not all so bad but that's that's i think how most latin background families would uh right would associate this with yeah well, one of the inter- interesting things, I mean, I, I, you're obviously you're Latin, but uh, I mean, I make an assumption here, but, but you see, like, you're more, which was one of the interesting things, research and the, the whole drug laws and stuff and the criminalization, but you're more, you identify more white, like white Latin or, or, or just, I mean, you know, but you know what I'm, I guess I'm, I'm having a hard time articulating this properly, but. <laughs> There's the whole thing with the black, black individuals and brown skin Latino folks are overly criminalized for drug, drug behavior. And I mean, I was wondering where you, what, yeah, what your thoughts on that issue is uh, related to the drug policy. I mean, I wouldn't really, I haven't put an immense thought into it. I feel like I'd be classified as a white, just a white male here, especially right. in Miami. Or South Florida in general, just because there's a lot of first generation Hispanics. So like our white here, I feel like it's kind of skewed, you know, because of a, a lot of our white population here comes from a Latin background. Right. So I'd say that in South Florida, I could be considered white. But let's say I go to somewhere like another country up yeah. north, I'd be considered Latin. Right. I but, but, but I mean, it's just the data really I mean, it points it out that people uh, like... You know, like a, more of a Dominican Latino or Puerto Rican, they're a lot darker, and then they come. And, and the, if you look at the data, that they're more likely to become end up being locked up for uh, for drugs. And, and I mean, that's I mean, that's one of the reasons that it got me more passionate about it after working in some as a, as a therapist at this uh, this agency that deal, that has like a, had a contract for people on uh, federal probation and they had to have some type of drug involvement to get into the program that I was working and you just see you just see the disparities in the people that get involved with it versus uh, in that book that really talks about it uh, if you're familiar with the the new Jim Crow have you heard of that book yeah 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 I I believe it was mentioned in that documentary the house I live in uh-huh. I've, yeah, I've never seen that one. It's really, really good. It goes, it, it touches upon the same thing, though. You know, with the crack cocaine laws. Yeah. I'm sure is what you're going to test yeah. to. Well, that's part yeah, of it. It's more than that. Yeah. I mean, the weed, ex- particularly, is another one that, uh, if you actually look yeah. at the data, that there's more you know, white people smoking weed than, than non white people, but there's more people locked up for it that are, are not white. Yeah, it's the case with the drug arrest in general. Yeah. Just, it's like that. Yeah. 
I mean, I definitely feel like my skin color has protected me from serious criminal prosecution. I feel like I'd be in jail right now for sure. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. I would be in jail for, uh, for petty drug arrest, nonviolent and whatnot. Yeah. Just, uh, because I'm light skinned, you know, my parents had some money to buy a lawyer. You know, he defended us. I came in in a nice suit. You know, I came with my parents, right. but I feel like if it wasn't for all of that, you know, I'd be in jail for sure. No doubts. No, I mean, I, I also the, the perspective I have on a lot of this stuff is that, like, obviously I'm not, I'm white myself, but it's just to me, it's like when there's injustice done to particular groups, it, it affects everybody. White people just, it just, you know, creates more suffering when there's all this injustices being done throughout the world. And that's, that's why I'm passionate about the, like the Black Lives Matter and all those kinds of things and, and the sensible drug policy. I feel it all sort of is all connected. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of the drug laws here originally made to target those specific populations, you know, like, uh, yeah, like when the drug wars first started with Nixon, you know, he wanted to get rid of the hippies and the black people. Right, exactly. You know, so the best way to get rid of the hippies and the black people is to get rid of the drugs associated with their, with that culture, you know, and, uh, I mean, he, he succeeded in what he wanted to do. I, I feel, you know, for the most part, he succeeded and he's been succeeding with that. You know, but it's a so much a BS at the end of the day. You know, it is. And the other thing I'd like to touch upon is the whole, um, yeah, the whole, uh, you know, the addiction is a brain disease thing, and, and your thoughts on that. Yeah, so that's a, it's a complicated question. I wouldn't say. I could say that at one point, maybe somebody's brain is different enough from another individual that it may be characterized as a brain disease for that certain moment, but I feel that the brain is constantly growing and repairing itself and changing itself. And just because you can be suffering from a disease at a certain moment doesn't mean you can't recover from it. You know, kind of like when somebody has a flu, you know, at the moment you have a flu and you're sick, but eventually your body goes into homeo, you know, your body, your body just goes back to normal. It regulates itself, it fixes itself and you're back to baseline. I feel like, you know, somebody that's suffering from a, from addictive behaviors or addictive tendencies could have a similar experience to that. You know, their brain at the moment could be going through some weird chemical imbalances and after a while it restabilizes itself and it goes back to like a normal baseline working state, you know, but I, I, I couldn't say that somebody has a disease and they're ridden with it for their entire life. I don't, I don't believe in that. Once an addict, always an addict. I think that's, you know, I think that's garbage. Yeah. Personally, but you know, <laughs> but, the brain. But, yeah, I, model, I agree with you, but then, like, you know, as you know, that if you uh, if you argue with some of those statements, you won't be welcome in the rooms and that whole community. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's one thing that's you know, I, like, how do you guys know, like? really like yeah that's one thing that, that always pissed me off too like once an addict always an addict that you know i would i would see myself and, and think like am i really always going to be chasing like after drugs no like i have goals now you know i'm going to be chasing after these goals i want to accomplish or you know just these things that are way more important than getting high you know i feel like that's another thing to help me to having actual priorities not just low-level priorities that I felt like I had to do, kind of like school, you know, get A's, you know, you have to succeed. But Yeah, but that's one thing I'd like to address is that is the one, yeah. the one uh, thing they like also talk about in the recovery rooms what? is the, um, uh, yeah, that your recovery should come before everything else, which I, which I think is another sort of BS too, that if you have a have a, some practical high-level goals, that, that will – that will get you on the road to recovery rather than just focusing on your recovery. Uh, <laughs> Yo, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. My brother like, okay. came in and like, was just like, laughing, like, laughing <laughs> at me. <laughs> He's always like fucking around with me. I'm sorry. Can you it's continue from like, yeah, the whole, like because it's one of the sort of things, part of the whole <laughs> room thing is that your recovery should become before anything else. And I think that's a load of crap too. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Uh, likewise. I think if you have more, like you were saying, high-level goals, that will 
that will get you to where you need to be and, and all the other stuff, the recovery will just happen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I agree with that 100%. I never really like thought of it in that way, but, but yeah, it's true. You know, as long as you have these higher level goals, everything kind of just like sets into place. Like one of the things I started realizing once I started giving myself actual goals is that I didn't have as much time to get as fucked up as I, you know, used to, used to get. Right. You know, like, it's, yeah, there's, like, no time anymore. I want to do these more important things. Well, it's like, yeah, and, and basically, I, I mean, when you're younger, you you know, you recover a little bit quicker. But if uh, if you have work or school or some or you know, a fa- significant relationships and you realize if you go out and get fucked up, that it, it just, you can't really perform, you're going to, you're going to, the relationship's going to suffer, you're not going to be able to perform at work or at school, and you just can't, you're not going to be able to do it. So you're going to have to adapt your your drug use or whatever the hell you're doing to, uh, so you can do, do the things you need to do. But, um, they also talk about, there's some, some literature related to that, uh, which I think is interesting is that most people that are considered addicts, that they are, uh, the majority of them, uh, actually get better without any treatment. Uh, really, they also talk about before the age of 30, typically, or because, you know, it's sort of the same kind of thing, that people end up sort of be just becoming more mature and they realize that they can't act like a crazy person and do the, and, you know, be a man or a woman or be a responsible adult. <laughs> I mean, I feel like without treatment, I would have eventually landed upon that path right <laughs> you know but there's, there's a there's a ton of factors i don't know if like my psychedelic use influenced that at yeah. all you know in a negative or a positive way because you know psychedelics did get me into trouble because right. at one point i was abusing them but they also helped me get out of the hole that i dug myself in right. so it was like a double-edged sword for me in my opinion you know but i feel like i feel like eventually i would have i would have just realized that what i'm doing is is stupid and repetitive and it's not going to bring me anywhere so i should like try something else because it hasn't been working i feel like i would have eventually uh recovered without the treatment ultimately the treatment wasn't really helpful i could say that i that i I did learn a a good deal when i was at the south miami outpatient treatment program yeah i did learn a great deal when i was there you know i learned from other individuals that were addicted to much more serious drugs than you know, that my, my, you know, then my marijuana dependence, right. you know, I saw people addicted to like heroin and cocaine and they were having like horrible things in their life happen and they would still use. So what I got from that is, was the interesting like perspective that I got to get from, you know, from everybody in the actual legitimate, you know, treatment model that we have here in the United States. And, uh, I definitely got nothing out of the one year drug court program that was, uh, government funded. That was just horrible. Right. You know? Yeah, I mean, my experience doing some being a therapist in some of those programs. I mean, my approach to it was is like the majority of the uh, the people they're in the programs. They don't really want to participate in the therapy, and I don't really believe in forcing the therapy upon people. And with the ones, well, the ones that didn't, uh, you know, really want the therapy, I would just sort of try to do the minimal amount, whatever was needed to to appease the program. But there there were other people that wanted to open up and connect, and I would try to engage with them and that's that's sort of how I approached it as a therapist but um, one of the things I also want to address is related to the, the, the disease thing is and it goes with mental health disorders too is the, the whole brain disease things I think one of the really dangerous things about it that's problematic that I feel isn't talked enough of is that regardless of whether you're debating whether it's a disease or not and there's something going on in the brain, when you look at people that have drug problems or, or a mental health condition as having a diseased brain, there's some interesting research on this. Is it actually, I mean, they, they talk about how it reduces the stigma, but it actually, it actually makes other people treat these people worse. They, they look at the person as if they're like an other type of a human being, that they're not like the rest of humanity and I think this is really damaging and I really think people with these problems we need to see the the similarities between regular people and them not the differences and I think seeing them as the other is particularly damaging I was wondering when, when he, any uh, do you have any thoughts about that yeah definitely that's one thing that uh that kind of it kind of pisses me off about the our culture 
I can say because, uh, you know, just because somebody has a sort of a, you know, label like a disease or whatever, it doesn't mean they're all, they're different from everybody else. You know, I feel like the labeling is important for, uh, you know, for scientific research to, to somehow, you know, we need to label this subset of people to, to better understand them. Right. Sure. That's for the scientific community, you know, but outside of there, I feel like the labeling, all it does is, uh, make things more difficult. You know, we look at this person that is, uh, addicted to drug, to drugs, for example, and, uh, they're different. They're different than us. You know, they're fucked up. They have something in them that is, that makes them different from us. But, you know, that, that, like you said, it makes it harder to, to treat the individual well, but but also like related to the rooms that they use. I, I never ident- identified as an, uh, an addict myself, and I think that's another damaging thing about it. That is, I'm a therapist and I've worked in those settings. It's always that you're looked at as if you're not an addict, you're not, you're different, and you can't understand me, kind of thing. And I think that's damaging. I really believe this by this guy that I like. Um, that's uh, Gabor Mate, who's a physician that talks a lot about addiction. He's also a big uh, sort of advocate of psychedelic um, drugs for healing, too, a big ayahuasca sort of guy. And I mean, he says that we're all, you know, that we're all addicted to, in some way, that we all, I mean, the, sort of the more looking at addiction is just that it's, you know, life can be stressful, and it can be, uh, you know, it can cause suffering, and it's, at the, at the end of the day, that it, like people try to use drugs or other behaviors to sort of uh, escape from the pain of you know living, and, and that's human. It's not like a disorder to to want to feel better or feel a little bit euphoric at times, or or just try to find more meaning in your life. Or so I, I just think. Um, uh, yeah, looking at the the addict as the other can be particularly damaging. Um, and not helpful to move us to having a more healthy, uh, happy, prosperous uh, society. Yeah, it's one of the, the most difficult, the, one of the most difficult points to hit, just because our entire, our entire model of, of helping people with, you know, like depression or drug addiction is based on the whole labeling thing. You know, we have a whole book based on how to label these individuals and treat Yeah, but I wanted to go on, not, not, to, uh, you know, not to criticize you, but just to raise the points that you brought it up, how like you even talked about your own experience in treatment, how you were, you know, you were doing the marijuana and some psychedelics and these other people were doing crack cocaine and heroin. It's still that you're looking at them as their behavior is, I mean, yeah, the drug, those drugs, I mean, uh, there is a truth to that, that they're like, you know, the, there's a little bit of a hierarchy and, the drugs can can be more dangerous in certain ways, but um, but but seeing them as you know that your yours wasn't as bad and theirs was better, and how that can be damaging, seeing it that way. Yeah, so I agree with that. You know, when I was in there, I saw my use as not as bad as theirs, but in hindsight, we were in the same place. You know, we were in the same room with the same consequences in the same shitty place right and it was due to different drugs but we're in the same exact place just because you know the drug i chose to do isn't seen as the you know the king of like horrible drugs yeah but but, but i think it's more also more useful and i I think you'd agree is to look at it and that's how i would like to talk about it too is rather rather that's a good way of framing it that it's that you know, that it's not necessarily the chemical makeup of the drug. It's like it, it, both your drug use and theirs sort of led you to the cause enough disruption in your life that landed you in the same place. So, and and the, really, the I think focusing the treatment on the disruption in your life rather than on the, the addiction is more helpful in a lot of ways. Yeah, those are some of the things that helped me the most. Like uh, when I tested earlier to trying to use some of the cognitive behavioral therapy methodologies to, like, get better. You know, I would do just that, you know, identify, like, okay, so I got arrested on this date. How did I end up there? I was doing this behavior. Who was I with? You know, I was with this group of individuals doing this specific behavior, and then we went ahead and did this. You know, trying to, like, really track down and, like, trying to, like, trace my steps and my actions and my behaviors. And who was I associating myself with really helped me get out of the uh, 
the weird holes I found myself in my life. Oh yeah, I just thought of something I wanted to bring up when you were talking about it. It's also in the rooms that that mentality with you is. I'm sure they. I don't know if they they went after you like this, but they would probably say how you were looking at the heroin addicts is not is worse than you, and they would say, well, that you're going to be them if you don't you know if you don't sign up for the program. I mean, it's going to be you know jails, institutions, or death, and that whole thing, and. And I feel the other thing that approaches this fear-based thing I feel is not very helpful in, in changing behavior. They'll just try to say, you know, if you're going to continue like this, it's going to be heroin, and you're just lucky we got you in now, and you're not putting a needle in your arm. And it's uh, um, yes. and then the people that are doing the heroin, they're going to tell them, if you're going to keep on doing this, you're going to die, and you know, you're going to die, and you're going to die, and it's. And yeah, I mean, I, I agree that also there are a lot of people dying of heroin, particularly, but it's. Telling them they're going to die all the time is not—it's not the way to change their behavior. And, and, but yeah, yeah, I saw that. I saw that a lot when I was in the rooms. It was pretty much just that. It, that yeah, if you don't come to the rooms, you know, you're going to die. This is the only thing that'll help you. There's nothing else that'll help you. You know, they only speak about people that get clean using the program, but you don't hear of anybody else getting clean using any other methods. Like yeah, why didn't and yeah, I wanted to talk I about like, uh, this little segue to talk about more harm reduction. And uh, I really believe strongly in harm reduction. And I find it's, very, I, especially in South Florida, it's very challenging to find other people that are sort of support harm reduction practices. And I, and I, I would imagine that the whole, uh, the sensible drug policy is about more harm reduction. And I know it's about more about that. If you could talk yeah, so about that's your, something... Uh, yeah, it's something I like to focus on a lot, uh, harm reduction, just because, you know, I experienced a massive lack of harm reduction right. in my personal use when I first started using, you know, especially with the uh, with the ecstasy tablets here in uh, South Florida that are uh, heavily adulterated here, you know, not only here in South Florida, but they're heavily adulterated worldwide, you know, and I experienced that through my... Uh, not sensible drug use you know i had a uh, negative side effects from these from these research chemicals that were being put in the capsules and uh, after a while i started to realize what that, did they put in the capsules you know or yeah when i started doing the the test on uh on some mollies that i found in the in the local area for the most part it was a uh, synthetic cath cathinones which are uh basalts you know for the lack of a better word like uh mdpv and uh methylone butylone ethylone th those are the majorities and uh i didn't test any real mdma when i was doing that test the only real mdma that i found in south florida was uh from individuals that would buy from the internet yeah. but other than that it was a uh, heavily adulterated you know very nasty substances and uh you know i i took them unwillingly and i know a lot of individuals that took them unwillingly before you know, we decided to implement some harm reduction strategies into our weekends of use, you know, by applying our reagent testing kits, you know, sold by DanceSafe, which have saved a ton of lives. And I highly recommend for sure. Well, how did you, uh, yeah, if you could talk a little bit briefly about uh, the whole, how you got involved with uh, related to the MDMA and the, the, the PTSD study with MAPS. So I really like, I really like that study. I've heard of it for a few years and I really didn't get super in depth on it until I wrote a paper for my uh, cognitive neuroscience class on the efficacy of MDMA in treating PTSD. And when I wrote the paper, I, I got to go really in depth onto that study and uh, other studies in particular. And, you know, the results for that study are like, are pretty, very phenomenal in comparison to what is already given to individuals with trauma, you know, by the government, what is, what is FDA approved? And what is FDA approved is, uh, two SSRIs, which are just antidepressants. Which are, which are the SSRI, Paxil? What's, what are the ones that are given for, for trauma? I believe it's Paxil and another. I forget the names in particular. Yeah, but, but they all the basically SSRIs. have the same mechanism of action. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the same mechanism of action. But, uh, could you talk, so, yeah, they, a, talk a little bit about, um, uh, sort of the, the, the mechanism of action with MDMA and uh, trauma. Yeah, so 
when somebody has PTSD, they they go through a weird way of regulating their emotions. You know, I compare it a lot to uh, you know, when you watch a scary movie, you watch a scary movie and uh, you hear like a like a loud bang. You know, your immediate reaction, your gut reaction, is to be scared of that bang. The startle, and then you have something. Yeah, the startle, and then you have something else in your brain tell you like, oh, it's not real. You know, you could calm down. You could calm down. So the first initial fear response is said to be modulated by the amygdala. Right. And then there's another part of your brain, which I believe is the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. So the DMPFC, that goes ahead and tells your amygdala to, like, quiet down. It's not real. You know, you're in a movie, so calm down. And in PTSD, that uh, that emotional regulation mechanism is uh, is dysfunctional. In PTSD, the amygdala is overactive, so that that initial fear response, that starter response, is more powerful. Whereas what normally inhibits the amygdala, which is the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, doesn't work as powerfully in individuals with trauma. You know, they're their DMPFC can't tell the amygdala to to quiet down. They can't, you know, they can't cease the that initial startle response, which is why it leads them to have the, you know, their episodes and their, you know, the episodes of re-experiencing trauma and whatnot because of of those triggers. And when somebody takes MDMA, it it inhibits the amygdala and it activates that dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. And it pretty much does the opposite of what trauma does in a healthy individual. And I think that's the main reason of why it works so well. You know, the brain abnormality seen following trauma is what MDMA reverses in the short term when the effects are happening in your body. Have have you heard of the term uh, paper tigers? No, I have not. Paper tigers? No. But basically, it's just a metaphor for, for what you're talking about um, is the idea that somebody who's experienced trauma, that they're, um, they're, they're hyper, they have that hypervigilance, that they're always sort of scanning for, for threats in their environment. And they, they often, uh, you know, their brain feels like it's being chased by a tiger when the threats are benign threats. And that's the idea that it's not a real tiger. It's a paper tiger. Yeah, yeah, that's exa- the exact same thing I'm yeah. alluding to. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and the MDMA is so so useful and so powerful because it, you know, it breaks down those defense mechanisms, those defense barriers that these individuals have yeah, on and, their memories. And, and I, my experience is the people that are really the, you know, obviously, I mean, there is a value to looking at the continuum of people's problematic substance use and how intense they are with it. And the people that I, I've found that are generally they're very that are very uh, hardcore with their drug use, or generally have that very overactive startle response, and and uh, have experienced a lot of trauma, and, and they're especially with heroin that they're they're trying to uh, uh, work, you know calm themselves down with heroin opiates to, to modulate that that um, uh, fear response. Yeah, I could definitely agree with that. I mean, I guess a reason I never, I never experienced, you know, the abuse of those type of drugs that kind of take you out of your consciousness instead of throw you into it, because I, I've never experienced trauma in my life, like you know, real hardcore trauma right. that'll affect me in uh, various ways. You know, I feel like I never experienced that, so I was never one to abuse the type of drugs that are numbing. You know, like a heroin or a, you know benzodiazepines that you know numb your your consciousness. I yeah, kind but of, I mean, you uh, could say that uh, uh, cannabis can can numb you out a little bit too in a certain way. Definitely, yeah, yeah. definitely, yeah. I mean, it is used. Uh, I think it recently got approved for uh, for use in veterans for yeah, PTSD it here. Did in this by country. the uh, by the yeah the DEA approved it. I think to do research, but. I heard some conflicting views about that, whereas uh, how, how, I mean, I think MDMA is definitely seems more specific to really helping trauma than, than, uh, than cannabis, but, yeah. I, but 
But I think this is an interesting area related to, um, to drug policy in terms of having more sensible drug policy is I think you know, definitely a lot of people for years and still continue to, do, to find their own healing using cannabis. But, but, um, but I mean, I think you could even make the, the, the talking about using like alcohol is very, you know, it numbs you out and it's good for anxiety. But I mean, I think to call like alcohol, to make it a medical drug is, if you would say that, you, people would think it's kind of weird to talk about alcohol as like a, a medication, but it, uh, uh, I'm not sure if I'm explaining this best, but the idea of medicalizing cannabis and just, you know, let just people just, you know, uh, legalize it and have people use it and, in, in you know, try to have some guidelines for it and make it, quality control on it, but not have to make it into a medication per se. Yeah, so I, I get what you're alluding to, and I feel like I had a, I had more similar, you know, I had a similar outlook as to you. Yeah. Back in November, yeah, before I attended my first reform conference, I never really, uh, I never really saw the, a lot of the meta, the medical benefits of marijuana and the use of PTSD. But uh, when I was in the conference, I remember speaking to a lot of veterans, and they, uh, they really attested to the fact that marijuana helped with their, uh, with their symptoms associated with PTSD in a different way that alcohol did right whereas yeah so that's that no maybe you know, i was I, I believe it can i'm not I, maybe i wasn't clear about how i said it but i'm not saying it can't it's just it's not and i think the medical thing you know obviously opening it up making it for medical then you can do more targeted research and try to find the mechanism of action you know and tweaking uh, cannabis to make it more uh efficacious for for something like ptsd but um Anyway, go ahead with what you're saying. But... Yeah, and uh, I feel like it was just used to uh, to kind of like put a bandage on the symptoms. But the more I started finding out about uh, individuals using marijuana for trauma, the more I started to realize that it actually is it is pretty useful. You know, it does help. Uh, it help does help individuals process the trauma in a similar way to MDMA. Although I ultimately feel that MDMA is more is more useful for that specific application, well, actually, but no, we're talking the MDMA. I can't take away. There, there, there's something I wanted to bring up, and, and I mean, I thought that like the maps dinner was great, and I enjoyed your presentation. But the one thing that I, that I didn't hear about it was is I know that MDMA has the potential to be neurotoxic to the brain, and how how that that harm can be minimized with doing it therapeutically. What what are the mechanisms, or what are the precautions that are, that are taken in to try to minimize that potential for harm. So in the, in the clinical, in the clinical trials, yeah. what they do is administer, they, they administer a specific dose. And that is after a few weeks of letting the individual know how they will feel, you know, giving them psychological tests, you know, physical tests to see if their body would, react to it in a positive way you know they tell them pretty much everything they can about the drug and they prepare them for the experience and then they give them the substance with therapy you know followed by a few weeks later they give them another dose and some more therapy and overall it's no more than like two or three doses followed by a few months you know followed by a few months spaced out but uh the neurotoxicity associated with mdma is not as a uh, is not as intense as the previous literature makes it seem. Okay. There's very high neurotoxicity associated with individuals that are abusing MDMA, right. you know, using it on a weekly basis or even on a monthly basis for a long period of time. But with the frequency of use in the in the research studies, which is just a uh, you know two or three doses max at a specific dosage, you know, with the you know with this extremely pure MDMA, right. there hasn't been any any signs of neurotoxicity present, you know, there's a lot of literature attesting to the neurotoxicity associated with it, but there's a lot of uh, biases and compounding right. variables in the old studies, you know, that makes sense. and uh, there are, there are supplements you could take to mitigate the side effects, but they aren't, uh, they aren't used in the clinical, in the clinical trials and whatnot. There's a, there's a website called rollsafe.org that rep that, uh, 
that recommends some antioxidants and several supplements you could take with your MDMA. Well, I heard some and, people, uh, some more to... recreational users take uh, the 5-HTP after... Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah 5-HTP is highlighted in, uh, in rollsafe.org, along with a bunch of other uh, supplements that are good to take, like uh, alpha-lipoic acid or uh, green tea extracts. Yeah, just a bunch of antioxidants. But, uh, yeah, in the clinical trials, there has been no use of the antioxidants or anything. The most that they have that I have seen was in the uh, second clinical trial done with the full doses of MDMA, where they offered uh, they offered benzodiazepines or ambience for any individuals that may want following the experience. But I believe uh, it was the minority that, uh, you know, that, that wanted benzodiazepines or ambient. But I remember that that was an option given. But there is nothing directly for... Uh, neurotoxicity and that i think that's just because the neurotoxicity of mdma has been so uh it's been so exaggerated throughout the literature right and i feel like that goes and back to uh, like, and also you know, obviously the uh the public service information about it's probably, probably even more exaggerated than, than the literature even said. yeah like who is funding who's literature yeah. you know it's a nighty the night of the national <laughs> institute on drug abuse you know <laughs> they're literally just Drug abuse, they're looking for how drugs fuck you up and how they mess up your brain. They're not looking for how drugs could be beneficial. You know, they're just trying to focus on the negative aspects of drug use. And that's why there's such a, there's such a huge disparity in the literature of MDMA associated with the neurotoxicity, you know. Right. There's actually a paper called, uh, I forgot the exact name of it, but, but it's the last name of the individual's parrot. And it was a paper on the neurotoxicity of MDMA and uh, Rick Doblin and a few other, you know, a few other researchers came out with a reply, a response to that, to that literature. And I thought it was, I thought it was great. <laughs> it was literally called like a response to this paper to Mr. Parrott. And uh, I think it was a reconsideration of the neurotoxicity associated with MDMA. And I think Parent went ahead and, and replied again. So, you know, there's an ongoing battle. Yeah, but but, oh, but, but related to neurotoxicity, I mean, one of the, the interesting things is the, the, well, the most neurotoxic drugs that are given for people that are psychotic or, or the antipsychotics are some of the most neurotoxic drugs that exist. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, to me, it makes it's very idiotic when you think about it that if you, you, know, you conceptualize that schizophrenia is a brain disease, but you're giving people with the so-called brain disease, some of the worst, the most damaging drug for the brain, and they're told to take it every day for their whole life. Yeah, I feel like it's it's silly the way we do that. You know, I I, I get where they're coming from, you know, because after the discovery of LSD, we started figuring out that, you know, serotonin receptors have something to do with behavior. And, you know... Psychedelics agonize those receptors and people's psychotic symptoms get worse. We antagonize those same receptors and the symptoms get better. We know that much, but we know the effect that, you know, these drugs have on the other parts of our brain. Well, but we the know antipsychotics that, are generally more on the dopamine receptors, actually, not serotonin. The, the, the theory Yeah, on, they do both. What do you say? They do both. They do? That they, they work on both, Yeah. yeah. There's some that specialize on the serotonin receptors, some that specialize on the dopamine receptors. I think you're about to highlight the uh, the serotonin, the the schizophrenia theory. Yeah, it's a which, dopamine hypothesis. Yeah, there's two models. There's one that it's about excess serotonin, and there's another one on excess dopamine. Okay. And we're not sure which model is correct yet, but well, both as far models as I know, both are, models are flawed. Are sounds. Both of them are flawed. Yeah, yeah, they're sound and flawed in several ways, but uh, yeah. Oh, but the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, at, the, uh, at the end of the day, I mean, the, the issue is, is is just not, I mean, you can't reduce any of these, pro these conditions to one neurotransmitter. There's so many other things going on, so many, they all work in a system. I know that's one of the central problems when you try to isolate it like that. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I feel like it makes sense for some reasons, like, uh, you know, if somebody, if somebody takes a, takes a bunch of a dopamine agonist like a methamphetamine or something they'll eventually end up in a psychotic state you yeah. know because of the stimulation of dopamine receptors just like if uh somebody takes a massive 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 dose of lsd you know they'll experience psychotic disorders 
you know, because of the overstimulation of the serotonin receptor. So we can't, we can't say that it's because of the serotonin or the dopamine receptor, but we could definitely say that has something to do with it. And, you know, we just don't know how. There's right. so many, so many variables and like everybody's different, you know, and we know so little compared to what's out there, you know. Well, anyway, well, thanks a lot for chatting with me, uh, Kevin. I, I hope to, uh, to continue the conversation and connect in the future. Yes. Most definitely. How long has this been? Okay. I mean, uh, you, you said you said you were a therapist, right? Yeah, I don't know if you yeah. have to go or anything. Like, you what have you to say? go or anything now? No, but I can still like... go for a talk a little bit more. What's what's going on? Yeah. Okay, I was just curious as to uh, what do you? I know you specialize in trauma, but what exactly? Like, yeah, tell me about yourself. I don't know exactly what type of trauma you do and or what type of a therapy you give and whatnot. Yeah, I wanted to hear about some of that. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um... Well, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, but I'm, I'm actually wor- I'm working on my PhD in marriage and family therapy, and my uh, my special specialty is more like family dynamics and family therapy. And um, but um, but I've been into interested more recently now in the neuroscience part of things. And I, there's this great journal called the Neuropsychotherapist, and uh, trying to understand more about that. How uh, because anything even you know, talk, like, I mean, this idea, I mean, initially I was sort of very resistant to the the brain part of it because I felt that the whole, the brain's theory about, the, you know, studying the, the, the brain part of the psychology can be very reductionistic, but now I can find it very, can it can be interesting because the brain, the way people write about a lot of the neuroscience more, it's more um, sy- systems oriented and that's more what I'm into. And, you know, talking, you know, anything, having a relationship with somebody, me talking to you, your, your brain is being influenced. So this idea that drugs are the only thing that influence the brain is, uh, is I think is also, uh, can be misguided. And, uh, um, one of the things I've, I've been doing now also that I just recently uh, got involved with is, um, that I find people find a lot of benefit for with helping them, uh, register their, their dog as a service animal. And, uh, yeah, I found that a lot of people find a lot of benefit with that, with depression, anxiety, and PTSD. And I just think that people are becoming more open to alternative uh, treatments now, and and which I think is really good. I don't see the the the, the bigger policies uh, ch- changing related towards uh, uh, the whole um, you know the DSM and the pharmaceutical. Uh, industry complex, but I feel the general public is being more skeptical about, you know, antidepressants and, and stuff, and more people are interested in medical cannabis and, and, and yoga and meditation, exercise. Um, yeah. But another passion of mine is also really uh, um, this idea of peer support, and I mean, I, obviously, you know, with the whole the rooms thing and and the the addiction community has always had that peer support, but but uh, getting involved with more uh, there's been this peer support movement in mental health, but which I, I'm a big uh, advocate of. But I, I think the the downside of the peer support, as you can see with the whole recovery community, is that when people try to use their experience as as expert advice and say you have to do it my way, and to me, the value of research, as you can see, the uh, the general you know, general trends across the population, whereas people's own experience, you know, you're dealing with an N of one. You can't push that on somebody else and tell me, tell them you have to do it my way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so statistically insignificant. <laughs> right. But, but, but people do that. With, they don't have a scientific, I mean, understanding of things, and they try to of course, force of course, their yeah. experience on someone else, and I think that's just incredibly damaging. But... Um, but yeah, but my, my research that I'm doing this dissertation on is related to, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, ACES study. No, not in particular. Well, but it's something I feel everybody should know about. But it. I, I know you've referenced it. Yeah. yeah you, you've referenced it. I haven't read the actual paper. You should send me it. I'll I send read it to you, the actual paper. But there's been about 60 or 70 papers that have been developed from that original study. And it basically shown... Um, 
what was called ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, which uh, are, are events that are as determined by these researchers, which were um, basically if before the age of 18, did you experience emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse? Um, was one of your parents uh, had a substance abuse problem? Was a parent incarcerated? Was there domestic violence? Were you uh, raised in a single parent home or by neither of your parents? And each one of these uh, factors they gave a number to. And the, they, found, they found the greater the number of these was directly correlated with uh, uh, mental health problems as well as physical health problems such as COPD, heart disease, diabetes, cancer. And um, for example, with, the dru with drug addiction, they found that uh, I believe if it was uh, 64... Uh, wait a minute, six or more of these things, there was a 4,500 4, times more likely to become an IV drug user. And the study was, it was a public health study done with 17,000 people. And it was a correlational study, but what they, they found that the correlations were so significant that, they were, that they've tried to make a case for some type of causality because the, the correlations were just so high that they were just so... Uh, these levels of correlations that, that are just pretty remarkable. Uh, so, and that, that's, and related to that, there's been this movement of, of creating uh, trauma-informed communities, and that's something that I, I've been trying to get more happening around South Florida, but right now in, uh, in Florida, there's actually two, the first trauma-informed community in Florida was in Tarpon Springs, Florida, which is, I don't know if you've ever been there. Have you ever been there? No, Tarpon Springs. It's no. near uh, near Tampa, and uh, they've done it there, and also in Gainesville. And I, I just think it's to really uh, deal with a lot of these issues: the mental health, substance abuse, and like the, the all these systems, the criminal justice system, they're all related. And I feel, I feel really the the, the general public needs to be have an understanding of these issues in, in a more trauma sensitive way, rather than the whole. Um, traditional disease model, which I think is very damaging. And I think having more of this trauma perspective is, is what really help us to have more healthy communities. And um, I mean, the, the central mantra of this movement is the idea that if somebody's acting crazy, it's not, it's not what's wrong with them, like looking at it from that disease perspective, that it's something that happened to them in their life that's causing these symptoms. As I'm sure you know, also with the, the, the you know the the more neuroscience research that we have now, that you can actually see that you know uh, traumatic events can change the brain, and this and that, that's why it's you know I mean I don't want to be in this either or thing that yeah these things definitely can change their brains, and it's important to understanding what are how different events shape biology and, and neurochemistry, but it's but they're interrelated. You can't just say it's all genes or it's all brain. It's got to be uh, this reciprocal relationship and it has to be viewed in that way. Yeah, of course. You can't look at one without the other. But I, I feel, feel like I'm... Uh, what did you say? That I, that I definitely started... Uh, I started kind of like how you started with uh, only looking at the psychological aspects right. of things and then I kind of like didn't pay attention to the, to the brain stuff. And after a while, I started to realize that the brain stuff does have its merit as well. But uh, you have to look at everything. You have to look at everything at the same time. You yeah. can't, uh, and, you and can't just look at same, one thing. And the same thing with the drugs. Other. I mean, you can't think of the whole just say no, that all drugs are bad is, is ridiculous, too. That You have to have a, you know, a balanced perspective and understand the benefit. Like every, almost, as you probably know, every, uh, every drug of abuse has some benefit to it. It's not all bad. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Every <laughs> single one. And then, I mean, like, in the, in the other thing is my viewpoint that we talk about we have this heroin epidemic and we have an obesity epidemic. And going back to that ACE study, the, the way they, these, these two doctors came out with the study is they were actually had a, uh, they were running an obesity clinic for people that were, like, extremely obese, like women that weighed 400 pounds. They found that these women uh, would lose the weight and then they would gain the weight again. And they found they all, almost all of them had a history of uh, sexual abuse. And that's what, call, um, that's what prompted them to examine the relationship between trauma and obesity. And then they found out 
you know, how trauma impacted the, the mental health and physical health and substance use. And, and I feel that we need to, it needs to be a shift in the consciousness, like looking at these, these problems as an epidemic and trauma rather than in an obesity epidemic, a, a heroin epidemic. And, and I feel it's very, uh, it's not helpful to just look at it in such a narrow way. I mean, coming from a, I mean, I, I used to be super obese. Oh, really? I was very morbidly obese. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would have thought like, that. Yeah. <laughs> Back when I was like 15 years old, I weighed about uh, 280 pounds. Wow. So I was extremely morbidly obese. How much yeah, you now? In my experience, I'm about uh, 195, 200 right. now. And, you know, I'm in the powerlifting team at school right. and uh, pretty active now, whereas yeah. before, you know, I was morbidly obese. Doctor told me I was about to get diabetes if I didn't uh, get my act together. Uh-huh. So I wasn't cool, but uh, definitely going through that helped me see the resemblance between uh, somebody who's addicted to food and somebody that's addicted to drugs. Right. You know, and a lot of the research I've done, uh, I've done in the lab, you know, compares obesity and drug addiction. And at the end of the day, I feel like they're very similar events. You know, it's a, uh, it's just the constant need to have this the stimulation whether it be food or food or a drug just to you know kind of just just to make up for whatever you're trying to you know get better from like if somebody has trauma they're just trying to heal that trauma and they're trying to cover up that trauma with anything whether it be a bunch of food or whether it be a drug well you know, maybe, any, but, but physiologically i mean i think one of the, the helpful things is that i've been interested in now is that Basically, looking at trauma as sort of nervous system uh, dysregulation, that generally your, your sympathetic nervous system is overly active and your parasympathetic is not as engaged. And, and or eating is a great example of this because eating food actually helps to engage your parasympathetic nervous system and it helps to really calm you down. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it's... Um, it's really about having more control over it because it's obviously both the, all these things can be useful, even like cortisol that we like demonize that as like cortisol is the enemy, but cortisol, I mean, you want to, when you're excited, it's useful to have elevated cortisol. It's just, it's problematic when it's elevated for too long. And that's what you see with people that are undergoing, uh, you know, a lot of trauma that they, that they have, their cortisol is like constantly elevated. And then, then it creates problems, but it's not that cortisol is inherently bad. It's it has no, yeah, cortisol yeah. is. It's then the uh, in the MDMA PTSD paper I wrote. I wrote I tested a lot to cortisol and its importance in a uh, in fear extinction and and yeah, just extinct fear extinction. It's extremely important in fear extinction and uh, learning how to uh, learn new behaviors. Cortisol. Yeah, but, cortisol has its, uh, its pros and cons. Yeah, but how, how did you, anyway, going back, well, how did you end up losing all the, the weight through the powerlifting? Is that how you got, or? So, how I originally started to lose weight, well, first I felt, I felt very, uh, I felt stigmatized, you know, because I was, uh, I was obese, you know, I'd get made fun of at school, you know, I'd get teased and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, but, 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 but I mean, I don't want to, uh, what's the word, uh, 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 be uh, too confrontational here, but related to, I mean, you said you didn't have any trauma. I mean, that's definitely tra- uh, traumatizing being, you know, being bullied, being a little obese and being picked on. I mean, uh, I would, I would consider that trauma. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's a, it's a level of trauma, but I, I feel like I downplay, I downplay it just because uh, I hear of uh, some stories of trauma other individuals might have gone through. And I feel like it's so, it's so minuscule compared to something like super traumatic. Although, right. No, I, I hear what you're saying, but but I but I believe this is something that I feel is useful related to the trauma. That it's that actually I got this really really first sort of articulated this. Her she's this woman now. She's in her 90s, and she she basically had one of her sons was um, I forget how old she was at the time, but her son was in his 20s, and he just. Um, Basically, these he was at a, some doctor's appointment. They were looking for some other guy, and they killed him by act. They he just they were they were trying to kill somebody else, and they just innocently killed this her son. And I mean that's a horrible trauma. But her her thing is that she says that you know your pain is your pain. It doesn't matter. Like you know you could just have a little cut in your finger. It still hurts. Another person could have their leg chopped off. But it's just 
and I, and I feel that, and I feel with the whole the trauma thing. It's you know, it's not a contest. It's what you know. Everybody has their own trauma, whatever their own suffering they have to deal with. And I think that uh, I know. I mean, that's I think it's sort of part of our cultural conditioning to want to downplay it. But 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 yeah. But go ahead with what you're saying. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Definitely, I could see how it's uh, be part of the cultural conditioning. You know, this country is super individualistic. You know, the the fact that you have to work, work, work. You know, forget about whatever trauma you may have. It's not important. You have to work, work, work. That's yeah. what's important. So, yeah, I see how that could be uh, affected. Yeah, but I interrupted but, uh, you. When yeah. You were talking about you're losing the weight. You're being bullied. You're you're saying or being yeah. I was just getting you know bullied. Stick. I was stigmatized against, and uh, you know, I wouldn't get attention from girls. You know, that was one thing that, that I didn't like either. And eventually I just, uh, I saw that my brother was a uh, fit. I saw that my dad was fit. And I started to just, I just got really motivated all of a sudden. And I started not being addicted to online gaming. And I started getting addicted to working out and uh, researching about working out. So I spent out, I spent like four hours of my day each day reading on a, like just, fitness and nutrition and how to get fit and i spent months just exercising every day and uh, eventually it just became part of my routine and my habit and i just practice eating you know eating healthy and i i try to have a balance you know i i'll eat like pizza and stuff or ice cream whatever but i also eat predominantly healthy food and i'll and i'll keep on exercising but uh definitely that's one thing that uh that helped me out in my life but it also showed me that I don't like to generalize, but I would definitely say that I have a sort of a addictive personality if there's a such thing as one. Right. Because I feel like I was addicted to, uh, you know, internet gaming when I was a child. And then after that, I was addicted to food. And then after that, I got addicted to, you know, fitness and how to get out of that. And then after a while, I got addicted to drug use because they're so interesting. You know, let me, uh, let me do them recreationally, and then I got addicted to studying them in the scientific side, you know, on the other way, side of things. So right. I don't know if there exists an addictive personality, but if there is, I feel like I definitely, like, have some of those traits, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's – I mean, I think the most, the, the most like, useful way to look at it is more of a continuum. I mean, even – what? No, no, get, go oh. Carry on. Well, I think yeah. the most useful to look at it is rather it's uh, it's not an either or it's a continuum and and this even this psychiatrist that a friend of mine that you know he said even the the whole which we talked about it before we both of us don't really like the DSM that but still the yeah. the the the, uh, the DSM they were supposed to be these disorders were supposed to be viewed as dimensional constructs rather than diseases but they sort of gotten you know hijacked into becoming diseases. What do you mean by dimensional? You mean yeah. like a spectrum? Yeah, exactly, like a spectrum. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But we with look that. at them more Definitely. as their binary categories. That. Yeah, that's one. That's one thing. Uh, somebody had told me about the other day. They're they're mentioning somebody else and how they had a how they had a disorder and they were like, oh, but that person's crazy. They have this disorder, and then I was uh, telling them, you know, disorders work on a spectrum. Right. You know, you could either be a little bit depressed or you could be heavily depressed. You know, right. it's not it's not a binary system, you know. Yeah, but related to that, I was wondering if you've ever seen any of this research. I, I think it's interesting that it's not really promoted, I think, enough that uh, that creatine actually is, is helpful with depression. Oh, really, with depression? I, yeah. I have not. I've seen it being helpful for motivate. No, for creativity. Oh, really? I've seen it being helpful in creativity, yeah, in the nootropic community. But yeah. I have not seen its efficacy in depression. Yeah, there, there's some study, and it actually showed that it was, for some reason, I'm not sure why, that it was more helpful with women with depression than men. And, um, well, and, and for some reason, it also helps to have, like, a, if you take antidepressants, taking, supplementing creatine with it seems to make the antidepressants more effective. And but basically, wow. I, I saw this other recent article about it, the, the uh, creatine and depression is that, it had some effect on the, um, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, that uh, a, a D, the, the, the receptor uh, and dis, that's involved with caffeine. You know what I'm talking about? Adenosine? Adenosine, yeah, that creatine has some effect on that, which really? is ba basically the idea that, you know, when you're depressed, that you sort of have low energy and you don't want to do anything, and that helps to give you that little boost 
it's a, it has some action on that receptor that helps you become more energized. Well, that's interesting that you that you mentioned the disparity between men and women. Yeah. Because if you want to go to like, you know, the culture on the cultural level, men generally eat more meat than women. Right. You know, for the most part, and meat that's has creatine, creatine in it. Right. You know, so that could maybe have something to do with that. You know, because of the cultural norms. But that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I've never seen that. Yeah. I've never seen creatine being highlighted in that in that manner. Yeah, no, there's, been a, there's been a number of articles on it. I mean, not that many. I mean, but it hasn't really been really uh, promoted that much. But uh, I mean, it's one of the most. Uh, I'm sure you know. For other bene- benefits, it's one of the most sort of research supplements. Oh yeah, creatine yeah. is like number one when yeah. it comes to a uh, in the in the fitness community. Yeah. Definitely, it's a phenomenal supplement. Yeah. Definitely. Any other questions for me? I mean, I'll... I mean, no, I think for now, I think we're pretty set for now. All you right. know, we definitely have to uh, sit down and talk again, yeah. though. Well, thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it. I'm glad we fi- got the time to uh, connect. Yeah, thank you, for, thank you for this. It was cool. Yeah. It was a nice little chat. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. you have a great day, Jeff. <laughs> Take it easy. All right.